let's just answer that question because it's it is racy. If if you're not in the mainstream media much, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but if you were out there as a you know, it's commentator that everybody sees all the time, like a Bill O'Reilly, and you said, hey, how about if we start praying for the terrorists? How about if you adopt a terrorist to pray for him? Some people would say, how dare you? I, all I want to do is kill them. Don't you understand? You can't pray for people like that. You have to kill them, which I sort of understand. <laughs> what do you say back? Well, they're not mutually exclusive, are they? I mean, we, we do have to protect ourselves. We do have to guard. But we, we shouldn't demonize. They're human beings. We need to understand, and we need to protect ourselves, but it, Jesus didn't get uh, immediate acceptance for statements like that, did he? <laughs> he riled people up and eventually they killed him. It seems to me that what we're supposed to do as, as Christians is to show people a different way to live. We live in a, a world of what I call ungrace. It's a bomb, my country, I bomb you back world. It's a... Um, I'll loan you money to buy a motorcycle, but if you don't make your payment, I'll take your motorcycle back from you kind of world. It's a world of revenge and, and even justice and fairness. And grace is different. Grace is getting another chance. It's, it's being accepted in spite of screwing up. It's those things. And if, again, I go back to the early Christians in that hostile environment in Rome. If you read the studies of what happened, they started acting in a different way than the people around them. So plague was a big problem in those days. Plague would hit a town, and the Romans would all run away. They didn't want to get sick, so they'd leave their relatives there to die. Well, the Christians said, that's not right. And they stayed behind, would nurse their relatives, and some of them would get sick and die. And the Romans up in the hills would say, huh, I like the way they live better than the way I live. Or the, I mentioned the abandonment of infants. Christians would organize platoons of wet nurses and, and people who would keep those babies alive. They'd pick them up, bring them into their homes, and start adopting them. That's one way the church spread. They started adopting children that were abandoned by their pagan neighbors. And after a while, the neighbors would watch that and say, hmm, I like that way of living better. Or they would see the Christians in the Colosseum, not fighting each other with swords, but these innocent people who'd done nothing wrong just being thrown to the lions. And they cheered at first, but something, a little voice would speak to them and say, huh, they didn't seem afraid. They would, didn't seem angry. They're, they're different. There's something different about those people. And ultimately, it's that kind of irrational, yeah, it's irrational to love your enemies. It's irrational to do all those things, to care about the weak, to forgive someone who's wounded you, to not get revenge. Those are all irrational Acts, but that's what grace is. It's not a rational, it's not karma, it's grace. I, I can't not agree with you, but I guess the struggle I'm left with is, is there such a thing as over grace? My guess is no, <laughs> but, but how do you say it saddens me that we demean life in America? It saddens me that we demean the sacred marriage union. It saddens me that we demean family. It saddens me that we demean commitment. It, all of those things. The, the, the integrity of the body by, by whatever drugs are being legalized. Right. You know? right. So how do, how do we, and maybe you haven't thought this through, maybe you have, how do we marry all that? Like, how mm. do we stand for something we think is, is, is good 
principle and, and, and is going to be good for the person that you're trying to preach to who's, who's demeaning their, their marriage or demeaning their life or demeaning their family or demeaning their children by allowing them to do certain things. How do you stand for that but give them grace at the same time? Yeah. Well, I go back again that a basic issue of trust is whether I believe God wants the best for me. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a very fundamentalist, strict, legalistic environment. And I thought, if you had asked me back then, give me a definition of sin. I would say, well, sin is God's way of keeping us from having fun. <laughs> because everything that looked like fun to me, the church said was sin. It was wrong. If you ask me now, I would say, sin is God's way of keeping us from hurting ourselves. Because... Um, I mean, take pornography. It's something a lot of men and young men struggle with. And it, it feels good. Wow, it's kind of exciting. It's a new frontier. But it's not healthy either for the watcher or the watched. You've probably seen interviews with these people, who come, women who come out of pornography and talk about how demeaning it is. I personally have done interviews with prostitutes who are sexually trafficked. And they say, every one of us, wish we could do something else. We were desperate. That was the only thing we had. And when they were finally liberated from being treated like a piece of meat, they felt that freedom. They felt that fulfillment. And, and the same with the, with the watchers. This is not what God had in mind with sex, that it's this disembodied thing. You're watching pixels on a screen. It's, it's about relationship. It's about getting close and intimate with one person. That's the idea. It's about love. Actually, I'm so glad you mentioned that because why would you love your enemy? You want them to become not your enemy. You want them to see things differently. You want them to put down that gun. You want them to grow into what God made for them, what God had in mind for them. And why do you, why do you not want your kids to use drugs? Because you know because you love your kids and you know what it does to their brains, what it does to their development, what it does to their ambition. And I think that's the key. If, if we made love our, our central focus, it, love is not a wishy-washy kind of, oh, I love everybody, if we could all just get along. Yes, we have to draw lines. Yes, we have to decide, I can't approve of this, I can't approve of that. But at, at every point, we have to communicate the reason is because I care about the best for you. This is the best for you. This is the best for our society. This is the best for that little baby. This is, this is better. It's a better way to live. It's a different way to be human. And I think what we've, what we've lacked is that we've worked so hard on the principles, getting them, getting them all right. And when you do that, if someone disagrees with you, it's easy just to dismiss them, let that gulf get wider and wider. The media plays into that. And we miss that human connection. All right, let's just get a little bit personal then. I have had the privilege of knowing you now for 10 years. You were very instrumental in the beginning of my Christian blog. I'm going to cry, but I won't. Um, you, Philip, come from a place of acknowledging all the yuck and, the <laughs> and all the pain and the suffering, you, you go toward it. You know, you wrote a book with, or several with Dr. Paul Brand in, in dealing with leprosy. Mm. And you, you have confronted these horrible tragedies that unfolded in America 
the, the, the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, and at Virginia Tech, and, and the tsunami in Japan, and, and you run toward those things, and you run toward pain and suffering, and, and mass school shootings, and you go and you meet with those people. And I want to find out what is it that draws you to say, I believe in God, and I'm going to acknowledge pain at the same time. Hmm. What is it that makes you run toward pain to say to everybody, even though I want you to believe in a good God, I'm also going to tell you I know the world's crappy. Mm -hmm. I was being interviewed one time on a secular media station, and the person was getting rather confrontive, and they said, in, in as many words, what good is God? You know, has, has Christianity ever done anything good in the history of the world? Because you hear all this stuff about the Crusades, Inquisition, the witches, you know. And I wasn't quite ready for that question, but kind of off the cuff, I said, well, boy, I can think of several things. I, I'm a journalist. I make my living by going, I make my living by going around, hearing people's stories, and writing them up. And I can think of three levels at which my faith, what I believe, has made a big difference in the world. First, individuals. I tell stories of prostitutes and those with leprosy and outcasts in India and prisoners in Africa, people who have no hope, who are at the very bottom of the social ladder, and yet they get transformed by calling out to God, by admitting their need and by just saying, God, help. <laughs> and God responds. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing for any of us to do. We like to take care of our own things. Thank you. But when we say, I can't make it on my own, I need help, God, as the recovery movement has taught us, God responds. So individual transformations, and I told him a few stories. And then I said, and then community. You mentioned Newtown, Connecticut, Virginia Tech, uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, places where I've been. If, if you don't have a community of support around you and the church rises to the occasion at those times. It offers counseling, it offers shelter. Even now, years later, churches in Houston and Dallas send teams down to New Orleans to rebuild houses. The government packed up and left. They did their job in two years and packed up. Churches are still going there. So individual community and then the whole society. I remember the first time I went to the country of Sweden it's a great place. It's clean. It's charitable. They care about the environment. They're very honest, relatively friendly, as friendly as Swedes will get, you know. And, and at the same time, I happened to be reading a book about the history of Europe. And it said in there that during the Middle Ages, most prayers in Europe ended with this line, Lord, save us from the Vikings. Amen. <laughs> and I thought, what happened to change this land of warring, pillaging Vikings into modern-day Sweden. Well, the gospel happened, and it took quite some time. It took a couple hundred years, but you can, you can, any of your viewers can go right from here and go to Transparency International. It's a website that lists the most corrupt and the most honest countries. I guarantee you 19 out of the top 20 will be Christian heritage countries. Go to a website that lists gender equality. 19 out of 20. Sometimes Singapore, sometimes Japan makes it. So the most corrupt are Christians? No. The most uncorrupt are Christians. The ones with the best gender equality. The ones with the best care for the environment. And you could say, well, yeah, but I mean, Christian heritage, they don't, they don't believe in God now, many of those European countries, and they're right. But Jesus said, 
The kingdom of God works like the smallest seed in the garden. It falls into the ground and dies. And out of that, a great bush grows and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And those of us in the United States and in Western Europe and even Eastern Europe, we still have some of that heritage. They, they did once believe and the seed fell into the ground and dies. And, and those values are still there. They're under attack now. That's why I'm writing books like this. That's why a lot of people are. But if you travel to other countries that do not have that Christian heritage, the difference, oh my goodness, is so obvious. Go to South Korea, go to North Korea, there you go. You do say it is true that the countries with Christian roots on paper are better nations. And Ginny, it was important for me when I was writing this book, uh, I didn't want to be just a propagandist. You know, you should be like the rest of us Christians. I legitimately asked the question, is it really good news? Because if you just turn to the media, they're saying it's bad news. You know, those Christians are judging us again, those hypocrites. You've got that divide that the media loves to exploit. And I am a Christian. I happened to grow out of a church that was not a healthy church. I call it a toxic church. So I'm, I try to be honest about the flaws that we have. And, and I wanted to step back and say, is it really good news? because I do travel internationally, it's pretty clear that it does, over time, have a healthy effect on a society. And if you cut off the roots, if you cut off the branches, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, there are places in the world, Turkey, uh, those places, that used to be the, the heart of Christianity, where Paul wrote his letters, where the letters in the first couple of chapters of Revelation are directed to, there aren't any Christians left there. You have to hire a Muslim archaeologist just to find the ruins these days. And it remains to be seen what will happen in Europe, in the United States, if we truly do sever that branch. But right now, we are living off, in many ways, the fruit of what came out of that seed falling into the ground and growing into a bush. Do you think part of your desire to say I'm going to go find all the worst pain and tragedy in the world and say God still lives and God is here and God still loves even though we have pain and horror and tragedy here. Do you think part of that has to go back to the fact that you were born into a world where you lost your dad right away? That you said, life is painful. My daddy died when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. I have to acknowledge this if I'm also going to really believe in God. I have to recognize the pain of my own childhood of losing my father and an angry mom and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're into a therapy session. I'm going to have to start paying you money, aren't we? <laughs> Yet probably so. As I reflect on the experience for those who don't know, my father died of polio. I was just a year old, so I have no conscious memory of it. But at the time, Christians around him believed he would be healed. So they actually had him removed from the iron lung as an act of faith and instead he died. And one thing I learned early on is what we believe about these things matters, matters greatly. We need to get them straight. And when I became a journalist and started listening to people who, who went through hard times, they would often say this, they would say, the church makes it worse. I was just trying to get well, and people from my church would come along and say, oh, you must have done something terrible, God's punishing you. No, no, it's not God, it's the devil, you know, and I'd just get confused. I wouldn't. And, and what I have concluded after studying 
again and again, every possible passage in the Bible on suffering is that God is on the side of the one sufferer who suffers. God's not the one sticking pins, making people. God is on the side of the one suffering. And if you doubt that, just follow Jesus around in the Gospels and see how he responds to a person who's lost her only son or a woman who's had a chronic condition for 18 years or even a person who, whose servant, a Roman soldier whose servant fell ill. The disciples, the Pharisees all wanted to pin down, who did it? You know, was it his problem or his parents or whoever? Jesus would dismiss that and just simply be there as comfort. And to me, that's the, that's the pattern. It's, it's a God who was perfect, who knew no pain, who deliberately chose to become one of us. And it wasn't an easy life by any means. It was a life full of pain and suffering. And Hebrews later reflected in, in, on that, the book of Hebrews, and says that, that Jesus uh, learned obedience through his suffering. And now we have a perfect advocate, someone who can represent those of us who have no voice, advoca, advocate, to the Father, because he's been here. He knows what it's like. He, he knows the pain. There's still all sorts of questions. Where did it come from and all that? And I try to deal with those things as best I can. But to, to me, the most important thing is we're not alone. God isn't this distant, cold, apathetic being up in the sky. God has become one of us and wants the very best for us, wants to redeem even those sufferings we're going through. When you go to a new town, Connecticut, or any place of tragedy that you've gone to, do you see God there in the midst of the suffering and the pain? Interesting. I have been invited to places like Virginia Tech and happened to be in Mumbai, India the night of the Taj Mahal hotel bombings. And I've spoken very difficult circumstances. I, every time I look out on these crowds and they look like little birds with their mouths open, please give me some food, give me some food. He's just drenched in sorrow and grief. And when I went to Newtown, I thought, oh, I can't possibly do this. I, what can I say? But I knew I had to, and I happened to be doing an article at the time on some of the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. And I had been watching in the New York Times, and it, it was pretty conspicuous that there were no new atheists writing the op-ed pages of the New York Times after Newtown, after the shootings at Sandy Hook. They were going to pastors, to priests, and rabbis. Same with September 11th go back and look at the New York Times. And, and I kind of put myself, after reading probably 15 books by these new atheists, I put myself in their place. What would they say if they were called to Newtown, Connecticut, addressing the community who lost 20 of their six and seven year olds and then some teachers and school workers to a, a, a mad shooter? What would they say? Well, it was pretty clear. They said, we live in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference. One day it's just going to flare out like a match. Human life ends when it ends. It's over. And, and I don't know how they would have phrased it because they tend to be nice guys. But consistent with their philosophy, what they would have said, honestly, was, you know, it's a tough universe out there. Things happen. Too bad. Too bad. Get over it. I could stand before them and say, here's what I believe. I believe that if you're upset by what happened, God is even more upset. And here's why, because God gave us a face, the face of Jesus, and it's a face streaked with tears. This is how God feels about what went on. 
And then I, I, I realized, you know, I write books with questions like, where is God when it hurts? And I realized when I talked to the parents, they only had one question. And that question was, this morning, I kissed my little six-year-old goodbye. I put her on a school bus. And then I was called later that day to a morgue to identify her bloody body. Will I ever see her again? And I could stand before them and say, the hope that I have, that I stake my faith on, my life on, is yes, you will. Because Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and it's a good place. And, and as best I know, your children, your daughter, your son, they're in the loving arms of God right now. And that's a, some people will scoff at that, but trust me, if you don't have that hope to offer, you don't have any hope to offer. And we, and we Christians, we, we have good news, you know, the good news that, okay, we live in a screwed up world here. God didn't leave us alone, God joined us. And then God showed us that the worst thing that can happen, the worst thing that can possibly happen, the murder of God's own son, we now call a day, not Dark Friday, Tragic Friday, Sad Friday, we call it Good Friday. Because God can take even that and make out of it something redemptive, something new, something whole, something resurrected. And I, I stake my life and my faith on the trust that God will do that for the entire planet. And if he doesn't, we're all screwed. <laughs> um, I had, my very last question was, what's the solution for Christianity? But you've already touched on it. I said, I, said, I mean, God has, God's got it, but wouldn't it be nice if Christians helped a little? The only thing I would say is I, I never like to leave an author without having gotten to say the thing that they want to say about their book. What, what do you really want people to get from this book and why should they buy it? I mentioned that I wrote this for the Christian community. They're my tribe. I am one. And yet we haven't been doing things as I think we should. And I guess what I would like to do, I would like people of faith to read this book, sit back and reflect. and have a growing confidence, we have something the world desperately needs. The, you don't have to go to many movies, you don't have to read many modern books to realize there's a thirst out there. Something's not being met. And TV barrages us, oh, just try this toothpaste, try this makeup, whatever, it's gonna answer it, and it doesn't. We're so aware of that. Christians have something that the world really needs. and. What saddens me about this divide was, is that we're not, we're not given God's grace just so that we'll sit around thinking, hey, we're better than other people. We're given God's grace so that we can share it, we can spread it abroad, because the world desperately needs it. I've seen it happen on all sorts of levels with all sorts of people. I've made my living writing stories of how grace transforms. And I just hope that the Christian community both gains the confidence that we don't have to go around with our heads hung low as second-class citizens. We indeed do have something worthy, valuable, and we need to present it in the kind of way that Jesus did so that the people who have any kind of thirst when they're around us, that thirst gets awakened. I want what they've got. I want what they've got. Not because I'm afraid, not because they're making me feel guilty, but because it's appealing. I'm a better person. It's a different way to live. I'm connected with God. It's something I can't get any other way. Grace is a, it's a free gift. 
There's nothing you can do to earn it, to get God to like you. It's absolutely free. The thing about a gift is you have to have your hands open. And if you have your hands closed tight in a fist, the gift falls to the ground. And that was so clear in Jesus' own day. It was the religious people, the Pharisees, who said, I don't need your help, thank you. I'm doing fine on my own, much better than those people over there. And it was those people over there, the publicans, the sinners, those with leprosy, the prostitutes, those with thirst, who would open their hands and say, yeah, I want it, I want it. And Jesus said, well, the water I give you is a living water. It's not like these other waters, it doesn't run dry. This one changes things forever. Christians have to stop being afraid of people who are not like them. Yeah. And stop making people who are not like them afraid of them. Yeah. It, it's a fear thing. It is a fear thing. I mentioned in the book, I've, I've been in this book group, and uh, I'm probably the only committed Christian in the group. And, and I, I hear the fear over here. They see Christians as these kind of like the Taliban, you know, they're these morals police, and if you elect them, they're going to cut off rock music and then stop dancing, and they're going to do all... And, and then the Christians, they're afraid of these people. All these secular humanists are trying to take prayer out of our schools and trying to change marriage and life and all this stuff. And it's fear, fear. And what did, what did James say? Perfect love casts out fear. And that's why I keep coming back to that word love. It's really the only thing that's going to cross that divide.